It's funny as I was waiting for the worship team to come back up and lead us. But I was just in our pre-service meeting where we decided for the psalm series, we're going to do one worship song, the announcements and greeting, and then we're going to do the sermon. And then we'll do three, four songs after the sermon as a response to the psalms. Which is how Elaine and I really like it. Rather do the, the musical worship after the teaching. But I'm down here looking at him going, why aren't you up there getting ready to drum? And it's, well, because I'm supposed to be up there. I, I, my mind is somewhere else, so hang with me here. Two weeks of vacation, we spent a week in southern Colorado, 18 of our family members, five of our kids, their spouses, and six grandkids went to this town called Uray, Colorado. Have you ever been there? Phenomenal place called the Switzerland of America. Unbelievable. Um, I wish I was still there. No offense. Um, so... Today, we are in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. These two psalms are called penitential psalms, which is kind of a weird word. They're psalms of repentance. And I wanted to do these after we did the first psalm, Psalm 145, which was a psalm of praise. And in the psalm of praise, we learned about the character of God. And so that was the basis of our praise and worship, that who is God and that, that foundation, who we understand God to be, then sets us on a course in our life of worship, or supposed to, if we have a proper understanding of who God is. So I thought, in the sequences, we're not walking through the Psalms, you know, one, two, three, four, five. I'm doing a more picking themes from the Psalms. I, I was thinking that after we know who God is, then it's who are we? And we are image bearers of God, which I teach about a lot here made in his image, but we are fallen image bearers. We have chosen sin over a pursuit of obedience to our God. So in light of that, I thought we would deal with the Psalms of repentance as we come in humility before this great God to be restored back to that relationship. And I wanted to pick David. He, he's the primary author of the Psalms of repentance. And the most famous one is Psalm 51. Psalm, that's where David commits adultery with Bathsheba, confronted by Nathan the prophet, and then David repents. Psalm 32, also written by David, has some of the same themes, so we'll dip in and out of there today also. But let's ask God to guide us. Father, guide us in your word today. Soften our hearts about what it means to know you, to walk with you, what we're supposed to do when we sin against you, what repentance is. And, Lord, to learn, unlike David, to keep very short accounts and not to make excuses and cover our sins. So teach us today, you know, the anatomy of repentance from David. And um, thank you for your spirit who convicts us, who corrects us, who trains us in righteousness. Um, in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Psalm 51 requires us to know the story of David and Bathsheba. So we're going to start there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to turn your Bible to 2 chapter Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're visiting today, next week I should be normal. Um, David is unique in salvation history. My apologies, Tony. There's an issue. Uh, we have a white Subaru Outback, Nevada license plate 273. 
N29, 273 N29. It's blocking a driveway, and someone is very upset that that car is being blocking the driveway. Please. Thank you. Repent. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Also, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll bring you a Bible. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, bring you a Bible. Ushers, well, there's some hands over here, you guys. If you don't own a Bible, keep it, and it's a gift from us. So, David's unique in salvation history as the father of Jesus. Although there's a thousand years between David and Jesus, D Jesus is known as the son of David. But, but So he's unique, but he's also just a human being like you and me. So his experiences are our experiences. And bo both his sin experiences and his repentance experiences. So, so let's look at this. The rise and fall of King David. When I say the rise and fall, first was the rise. David was a man after God's own heart. I think you know the story. Saul was the first king of Israel. And Saul started off really good. And Saul was a very tall man, handsome. Um, but Saul didn't have a heart for God. And Saul regularly disobeyed God. And at some point then God comes to him and says, listen, you're done. And the, king will no, the kingship will no longer be for you or your children. I'm taking it away from you and giving it to another. And he tells Saul, Saul, I'm giving it to a man who has a heart for me. A man after God's own heart. This is what he says in, stay in 2 Samuel. I'm going to read to you 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, he says to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Keep in mind there the condition of being a king and obeying Yahweh. So God sought after that man who has a heart for him, and he sends his prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse. And Jesse has seven sons that Jesse brings out, seven sons and lines up. And Samuel goes to each one of them. And he comes to the first one, again, a tall, strapping, good-looking guy. And Samuel's thinking, surely this is the one. And God says to Samuel, no, 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 he's not the one. You're looking on the outside. I look on the inside. I look at the heart. So he goes through the list of all seven sons of, of Jesse. And God says no to each one of them. But Jesse knows it's one of, Je Samuel knows it's one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel says, do you have any other children? And almost like it was an afterthought, Jesse goes, yeah, there's, there's the young one out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him in. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So remember, God doesn't look on the outside, but we do. It wasn't that David was a short, ugly person. It was that David was a very handsome man. But that's not what God looked at. Samuel noticed that. He was ruddy, which was a redhead. Beautiful eyes and handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Very important to remember, as we'll look at it next week, 
the idea of the spirit of the Lord on the king, you see God took the spirit away from Saul. Took the spirit away. That's his anointing to be king. Took that spirit away and he puts it on David. And David is now anointed to be the king. David was an amazing king in his first half of his, his kingship. A man after God's own heart. Half of the 150 Psalms are written by David. David was a musician. He was a poet. He was a shepherd. And he had great success. God gave him great success in vanquishing Israel's enemies. So this takes us to the fall. I titled this, The Fall, A Man After His Own Passions. The first half of his kingly ministry was a man after God's own heart. But then something shifted in David, became a man after his own passions. Now go to 2 Samuel 11. First verse, 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. You all there? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, who was his general, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the writer here wants us to know something. In the spring when kings go to battle... What did David do? David stayed home. So this is the first step in us going down a road of sin and destruction. The first step is we make a decision to be where we're not supposed to be. I want you to think about that. Think about some of the roads you've gone down. And what was the first decision about your choice to put your mind to something or to put your body in a position, a location where you didn't belong. And often we justify it. Well, it'll be okay this one time. David was where he was not supposed to be. And that was the first domino of falling into incredible sin that not only deeply affected David, the rest of David's life, but it affected Israel in a horrible way. David, I'm going to tell you a part of the story instead of reading it to you. David goes on the roof of his palace and looks out. And the roof of the palace is high. So he's looking out on his city, the city of David, Jerusalem. And he notices close to his building a woman on top bathing. Now, I really don't understand the custom of bathing on the rooftop. I, I don't want to ever impugn um, Bathsheba's character, what she's doing. She's probably doing something somewhat normal. But David's not supposed to be there. He sees her bathing and she's beautiful. So the next mistake David made, he sends to inquire about who this is. Who is that lady? He was where he didn't belong, and he started asking questions he should have never asked. Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So that's what David gets back from his servants. Is that not Bathsheba? So she's a daughter of somebody that serves David. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is very instructive. Uriah was not an Israelite. He was a convert to, Israel, to Israel's religion. He was a Hittite, which in, in, in parts of history is Israel's enemy. But he converts to following Yahweh, and he has a wife named Bathsheba. But where's Uriah? 
Uriah is out fighting for David. Ooh, yes. Well, he sends his servant to invite her over, and the rest is history. Sometime later, whatever the time you ladies become aware of this, the word comes back to David, I'm pregnant. So David responds with a basic human instinct. We've all done it. He goes into self-preservation mode. How can I cover my tracks? Sound familiar? A little more confession time. Sound familiar? We all do it. It's funny. Let me say I do it, so I presume you do it. I don't immediately go, oh, God, I've blown it so bad. Will you forgive me? I repent. I go, how can I not get caught? How can I cover the circuit? How can I cover the consequences? How can I not let my wife find out or my, my parents or whatever it is? Our mind goes to self-preservation as opposed to restoration of relationship with God. So here's David's strategy. David brings home Uriah from the battlefield and tells him, go home and clean up. It's basically what he says, go home and clean up. Because what's he hoping for? He's hoping he'll go home, having been on the battlefield for months, come to the wife he loves, have a relationship with her, goes back to the battlefield, comes back home, there's a baby, he assumes it's his. Well, Uriah doesn't go home, but rather sleeps on David's porch. David finds out from his servants. Listen to verse 10 and 11. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you, come from a, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Look at Uriah's response. This reveals Uriah has a heart for God and for Israel. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and to live with my wife, to lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The integrity of this man, that he's got a, a, a wife at home that loves him. I'm sure he misses her, but he believes his duty is to be on the battlefield. And he's not going to go home and enjoy the love of his wife when all his companions are at war. So David ups the ante on his self-preservation scheme. David invites him over to dinner and gets him drunk. Surely when he's drunk, he's going to want to go home. But Uriah stayed at David's palace and bunked with David's servants that night. Uriah the Hittite had more integrity drunk than David did sober as the king. What happened to this man after God's own heart? You know, for the rest of biblical history, David is seen for the first half of his life that he was someone who honored God. Regularly, all through the rest of these historical books of the kings and the chronicles, the kings are compared to David. They're compared to David. He was, he was okay, but he wasn't like his father David. But I think, what do you mean he was okay? Or, or like his father David? His father David messed up bad. There's one particular sin David never committed, 
And that was idolatry. David never worshipped another god. And that was the sin of most of the kings of Israel and Judah for hundreds of years. They abandoned Yahweh and went after other gods. David never did that. Such to his credit that his, his memorial in our minds is his, his faithfulness to Yahweh only. But his humanity with his sin, I want you to think, I want you, we're going to walk through the story now. And I want you to count all the sins David committed with me, okay? So, after, I'm a little confused here, sorry. Imagine that. Okay, I'm going to read to you 14 to 17. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So he sent Uriah back. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So, so far, what sins has David committed? Adultery? Murder? Did he do the murder himself? He had Joab do it. Was, was Uriah the only one that died? Multiple other men died in order to get Uriah to die. So we have here adultery, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, death penalty. We have conspiracy to commit murder, where he pulls Joab into this. And not only Uriah, but others uselessly and meaninglessly died for David's to cover his sin. So we have, we have deceit, we have adultery, we have murder. And we can go on, we will. So let's, um, well, the news comes back to David that this has taken place. So here's what happens. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So in David's mind, problem solved, sin covered, consequences averted. Not so fast, David. Because now we get to Nathan the prophet. Chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David and tells him a story. And here's the story. There's this rich, wealthy man that has, has innumerable sheep. But that rich, wealthy man has a visitor come to him. And by custom, he's supposed to sacrifice one of his sheep to feed that man. But he doesn't want to sacrifice one of his sheep. So he goes to his neighbor, who is a poor person, that has one sheep. And a sheep that's a pet of the family. And that man takes, this is the story Nathan's telling David, that man, the rich man takes the poor man's sheep, kills it, and feeds it to his guests. Robs the poor man of the only sheep he has because this rich man is too selfish to take one of his innumerable sheep to feed his guests. And David freaks. That man deserves to die. 
That man deserves to die. How dare he do that? By the way, stealing someone's sheep isn't a death penalty. Adultery and murder is. That man deserves to die. And so then he says, but he doesn't bring that death penalty out. He says that man needs to pay back threefold of what he took. So after David passes the judgment on this man, thinking this is a true story, here's Nathan's response in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into, the arms, into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. So by the way, I asked you, did David do it? God considers him as doing it. He's dead for one reason, because you planned it, David. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, which is even bigger shame. You killed him with the enemy's sword. Now, therefore, the sword, here's the consequences. Don't miss this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. We're going to see David is forgiven. Forgiveness does not mean no consequences. Do you get that? We can have major consequences for our choices that last a lifetime as David's did, but still be cleansed by God for the sin. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, which, by the way, was his son, um, Absalom. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. Absalom set up a tent in public where he went into David's wives. For everyone to know, Absalom is king, not David. It broke David's heart. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So what's the, what's the penalty for murder? For adultery? But God says, I won't take your life. Nonetheless, nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah, Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of this house, his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servant, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. David rose up, washed himself, and went back to his life. I want to take you now to Psalm 51. That was a long introduction to the next, this sermon and next week. But I believe it's during that time of anguish, praying for his baby, 
that he writes Psalm 51. Seems to be the right context as we now go to Psalm 51 to say, what would David say during this time of fasting for your sick child that is a consequence of your choices? So David's Psalm of Repentance. Let's look at the anatomy of what repentance is. It'll be this week and next week. So I hope you come back next week. Um, if, if you're not available, it will be online. First step is knowing God's character is foundational for repentance. Let's look at Psalm 51, the introduction, and then verse 1. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here it is. Have Picture David now, sackcloth and ashes, hasn't eaten in days, in great pain because his child's going to die because of what he did. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So David's first place is to call upon God, not to remind God of who he is. God knows who he is. Maybe to remind himself and to stand upon the character of God. But look at those things. Underline them in your Bible. Have mercy on me. Do you remember the difference between mercy and grace? Grace is the idea that God gives you something you don't deserve. He lavishes his blessings upon you that we didn't earn. That's grace. Mercy is God doesn't give you what you do deserve. What did David deserve here? Death. Have mercy upon me. Don't give me what my sins deserve. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And that is the Hebrew word hesed. If, if you if we spoke Hebrew, it would be chesed. But I don't do that well. So it is God's covenantal love. When God makes a covenant with you and he loves you, he keeps it. So according to that covenantal love you have with me, have mercy upon me. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Blot out is a, is a vivid word of taking something that is a stain and completely removing it. My transgressions are a stain on me and it's a stain on my country. Take them away, God, please. Now we know God is a God of justice. We see that with the fact that God brings consequences on David. And we know that God can bring, can and will bring consequences on us for our rebellion. The only place we have to run to is on his character of mercy, love, and compassion. So this is the first step for all of us in repentance. When you have committed that sin again that you hate, um, you know God hates it, you know nothing good comes from it. If the people you love knew about it, you'd be full of shame. Is your first thought to run to God and to fall upon his compassion? Or is it fear of him slapping you in the next week? Which he can do, by the way, if he needs to, to get our attention. I hide first. I hide first. But the first place David runs, once he's confronted, is to God's character of mercy, love, and compassion. God's mercy only has significance in the context of his justice. This is very important. People today don't want to make God a God of justice. 
They don't want to believe their God will actually bring judgment and condemnation to people. Well, our God's a God of love. He would never do that. I want you to understand, mercy and compassion and love are fairly benign if God is not a God of justice. If God is not a God who says, what is right here, if I were to follow what is truly right, is David, you die. But because I love you, because my heart to be merciful to you, to you, I will not bring the death penalty on you. Let's not overstate his love, mercy, and compassion and undermine his justice and righteousness. You with me on that? The whole thing is God. Let's look at verses 2 and 7. Only God can cleanse us from our sin. 2 and 7 kind of bracket everything in between. That's what we'll do today. Then we'll be done. So verse 2, then jump to verse 7. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So that's a response to his plea on God's love, mercy, and, and, um, and compassion. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So hyssop was a typical ceremonial thing. In Leviticus, you use hyssop and you dipped it in, in, in a, um, I think, blood, I can't remember, to, to, to wipe on lepers, to cleanse them from their skin disease. Jesus, when he was on the cross, wine was put on hyssop and given to him. So it's an it's a image of something that is used to wipe something clean. David's saying, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. We need to see our sin as something that makes us filthy. We, we can't see our sin as, oh, that's, you know, oh, it's just a little white lie. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Everyone does it. We need to see it as something that brings filth to us before God. This is not popular today in our country to talk this way. But we can't just wash it aside, excuse the pun, we can't just put it aside because our world doesn't want us to talk about sin. Our Savior came to wash us from our sin. If we don't acknowledge what that was, then the Savior's death on the cross really, again, is benign, has much, little meaning. But when we hold the depths of our sin up and look at it, then we say, wow, what an amazing God we have that loves rebellious people so much that he sends his son to take the penalty we deserved. 1 John 1, 9 and 10, if we confess our sins, this is a New Testament teaching, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's read the verses between 2 and 7 now. True repentance requires us to own our sin. See, David was trying to cover it. David made excuses. David's trying to avert the, or the, the consequences. We need to own it. I did that. No, oh God, forgive me, I did this, but it's really her fault. I, I didn't mean to point at my wife. I really didn't. Um, do, you remember, do you remember Adam in the garden? Adam, what have you done? What did Adam do? The woman you gave me. Not my fault. That's the natural response of fallen people. Try to blame somebody else. That's not what repentance is. 
First repentance is knowing the character of God and to fall upon his mercy, grace, and compassion, and love. The second step of, of the anatomy of repentance is own it. I did this. No excuses. It's a rare day, rare, rare day I do something wrong that someone made me do. In fact, I can't think of one thing I've done wrong that someone made me do that I couldn't have said no to. I'm influenced by people, but I chose it. So let's look at verses 3 through 6. There's a lot in here. We'll cover a, a few things. And then we're going to leave you hanging until next week. Verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. We know this. We know that, that that which we're hiding, hoping no one finds out, it's ever present. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. The sooner we come to the recognition that we are responsible for our choices, the sooner we can fall on the mercy of God. Repentance requires us to not make excuses for our choices. Let's quit the excuses stuff. And we teach our children this. They come and say, I'm sorry, Mom, but what do you say? No, but. Because the but implies you're not really sorry. It's just your introduction to your excuse. We all have excuses. My choices are mine, period. Verse 4, against you, this is a tough one, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So if, if David's truly writing this, and I'm surmising this, he's writing this when his child is sick. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is that true? Who did David sin against? A little louder. Who did David sin against? First who? Bathsheba. He uses authority. She had a choice to make. I don't want to deny that, but he uses authority. Then he pulls Joab into his deceit. He has Uriah killed in a way that was unnecessary that involved many other people. So what does he mean, only against you have I sinned? He sinned against a lot of people. This is always, I've always struggled with this. And I think, I think where, we, 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 where this is important to understand, I don't think David is denying his sin against his own people. I think what he's saying is, because of who you are, all that I did was sin. If it wasn't you, Yahweh, this wouldn't be sin. This was not unusual for a king to act this way. And in their, in their belief systems and the other religi world's religions of David's time, that's just what you did. In fact, their gods did that. Their gods were murderers and, and adulterers and adulteresses. You know, the pagan gods were horrible. So when people acted like the gods, that's who, who they followed. But because Yahweh is just and righteous, ultimately you define sin, Yahweh. So my sin is against you. David's not denying what he did wrong. He's just going straight to the source of who defines sin. You were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And we saw from the passage that David's baby, God, struck, which is a very difficult thing to filter through my mind in our modern sensibilities, that God would strike a baby. And we have to wrestle with that, that we need to wrestle with things the Bible says that we find a bit objectionable today in our world. And let's let the Bible define who God is, not the world define who he is. Let's always, two things I remember when I come to these kind of stories. Is God good? Yes. Is God, does God always do what is right? 
The scriptures say both of these in multiple ways. God, I don't understand the world I'm living in. I don't understand what's happening right now. I understand why that is happening over there, why you did this. But I know two things to be true, God. I know you are good and you always do what is right. So I'm going to trust you. We have nowhere else to go. And David knew this. So with his child, God, I know what I deserve is consequence. I deserve to die. And you've chosen to let me live, but it appears you're going to take my child. Please don't take my child. But here, so you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David falls down on the character of God again and submits to it. The last two verses for today. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you have desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. It's an amazing passage with incredible ramifications for life today. But for our purposes, David says, the origin of my sin started before I was even born. I was conceived sinful, which goes very good with New Testament theology that we all, from beginning, have a sin nature. But the second line, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. At the same time as we have a thing called the sin nature, we also know what's right and wrong. It's innate to us. God put it there. So we were without excuse. Does that make sense? That there's kind of, am I set up because I'm born sinful, conceived sinful? But I know what's right and wrong. These two things feed in to the whole gospel. That Christ came to redeem a people who were conceived and born in sin. Knew what was right and wrong, but chose against it. And Christ came to redeem and rescue us from that and to restore us back to a place where I now have the power to do what is right because of the spirit of God in me and the new nature given to me through the cross, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Isn't that glorious? And, and that's the beauty of this. David did not understand all that or even have those privileges that we have. We have so much more than David had with the new covenant. We'll talk a little about that next week. But for today, we're going to stop here and just, just want us to and, and come to this worship time with a little bit of humility of, of, I don't deserve anything good from God, but he's lavished it upon me. So what's my response? I'll say it again. I don't deserve anything good from God, but he's lavished it upon me. So what should be my response to this God? Praise. So the worship team is going to come up now, and we're going to do just that. We're going to praise him. We're also going to read Psalm 32 in the midst of this worship to remind us of who we are and the reason we praise him, because he is so good to us. So in the anatomy of repentance, as the worship team is getting ready, starts with knowing the character of God and that he is merciful to you, he loves you, and he is compassionate upon you. Then the next one is you own your own sin. Quit making excuses. Let's call it what it is. Let's learn to confess sins to one another. Not, not in the sense of I, if I don't confess it to you, I'm not forgiven. But in the sense of when I confess my weaknesses and sins to you and you to me, then we have an understanding that we're all in the same boat. And then we have an accountability to talk to each other about it. So for this week, that's the anatomy of repentance so far. We'll get more next week. Father, thank you for your word today, this story of David. Um, 
drill things into our mind, Lord, from the text today that you want us to understand individually, whatever aspect that is. But I thank you and praise you now for your mercy, love, and compassion. And we can praise you all because of Jesus. In his name, we thank you. Stand up.